is give you a gospel framework and paradigm, a way to think about wise choices. Social scientists have done studies. They estimate that you and I, on average, make 70 decisions a day, which boils down to four decisions for every waking hour. And these are conscious decisions, not like way back in your mind you didn't even think about it, but 70 conscious decisions for an hour. So let me ask you, think about this while I'm talking. What are the four decisions you made in the previous hour? <laughs> Was it, uh, do I have time to go to RUF tonight? Is it going to be raining? I guess I'll go. Then you got here, and you're probably deciding where you're going to park. Then you're deciding, am I going to go talk to that person or go sit down over here? Who am I going to sit with? Where am I going to sit? Am I going to keep checking phone notifications or put that baby on do not disturb? What am I doing after this? Am I going to cookout with Griffin? Am I doing something else tonight? Am I getting back to the books? We have these decisions that keep coming at us like an onslaught. And um, the little decisions sometimes are big decisions. We don't really know whether a decision is a big one or a little one in the moment. Uh, you might go to cookout later tonight with a few folks that you didn't know, and that becomes your friend group that you end up living with and knowing for the rest of your life. You might have made a little tiny decision that you thought was tiny to go to winter retreat, and you met your future wife or husband there. I met Anna on a winter retreat there. I had no idea at the time that had happened that weekend. Little decisions can become huge consequential decisions, but we don't know it in the moment. And then there's the decisions that you know it in the moment. Oh, this is a big boy. Who am I going to live with next year? How am I going to tell that girl that there's four spots in the house and she's the fifth? Uh, what am I going to major in? What am I going to re-major in now that I've left the first major that I had? Who am I going to interview with? Am I going to ask that girl out? What am I going to do with that boy? Should I confront this roommate that I think is in a dangerous spot? If so, when? How? All these big decisions come at us, too. The big ones, the little ones. So back when summer conference, RUF summer conference was a thing, Rip Suko, year two. One day, some of y'all in this room will know what summer conference is. It was amazing. I hope it will be in the future, too. But when we did it, it was 12 or 1,300 RUF students from all across the nation, coast to coast, border to border down at Laguna Beach, Florida. Did a lot of fun stuff, some great teaching, lots of fun beach time. In the mornings, after breakfast and some time on the beach, uh, we would have these two big old chunks of time, and they were for seminars. And these seminars were really cool because there was a list of about 25 really interesting, relevant topics, and you would pick two or three of those during the week to go kind of sit under and learn that week. Now, I've been to summer conference, I think by my count, 13 or 14 times by this point. And uh, I myself uh, find it fascinating every year to kind of track. It's like a little amateur sociology to see, okay, this year, what's gonna be the big seminar? Where's everybody gonna go? Where's the herd gonna go? Um, sex, dating, and marriage is always huge, but always in the top one or two slot of all of those seminars, with all of those students over the past 13 years. Uh, the seminar called Discovering God's Will or Decision Making, whatever, some kind of title like that, uh, has always been number one or number two. Three or 400 people in a room. 
I mean, that would be a hundred more people than are in the room right now. Standing room only for that seminar. And it, it's, it's obvious why, right? Because of everything I just said. How do I make these decisions? Um, but there's a twist. So uh, I'd been to that seminar two or three times. I'm a slow learner and I was desperate to know how to make decisions because I was terrible at it and still am. And so uh, I went to this other seminar. I was like, I've been to this one three times, so I was exploring. I'm like, I'm going to go to this one. I found one called The Person and Work of Jesus. So I go find my map. I walk into the room, and the door creaks open, and I immediately realize I just raised the population of this room to seven people, including the teacher. So I went and sat down in my creaky chair, and it was an amazing seminar. I loved it. But I've, uh, uh, that irony has always stuck with me. I've told this story, some of you seniors have probably heard this before, that, that irony struck me like a punch to the gut. And here's why. I remember why I went to the Discovering God's Will seminar. I, I know why I went. I went because I wanted someone to open up their Bible and show me a verse that was going to give me an algorithm or a formula to put all the data of my situation in should I date? Should I not date? Is this the one? Is this not the one? Who should I live with? What should I do with my life? I didn't know. I wanted to put in all that data into this algorithm or formula or decision tree, blessed by God from the Bible, and out pops the right answer. Because I didn't want to make mistakes with such high caliber things in my life and have to suffer the consequences. I wanted certainty before a decision. That's why I went. If you went, maybe that's similar for you. I wanted certainty before I made decisions. So I've always wondered if, if this situation were reversed and the Jesus seminar was the one that was standing room only, three or four hundred people there, just so hungry to be there and hanging on every word, I, I wonder would the, would the discovering God's will or discerning God's will seminar even have needed to exist? Would it have been so frantically packed with us if the situation were reversed and we were so clear about who Jesus is that there was less panic about what do I do in this or that situation. It's interesting. The more you know God, the more receptive and patient you are with his will. Even if you don't know it, even if you don't like it, even if you don't understand it, the more you know God, the more patient and receptive you are to his will. The converse is true. The less you know your God, the more disturbed you will be, the less comfortable you'll be, the more frantic you'll be with the thought that he holds your life in his hand or the thought that he's going to call you to live by faith in your decisions and probably not drop answers out of the sky that will disturb you and unsettle you and, and make you really nervous as it did me and still does in a lot of ways. And boy, does God know this dynamic. And it's why he's so good to so frequently put his hands on your shoulders again and fix eyes with you and say, hey, wisdom begins with me. Wisdom, wisdom, hey, hey, wisdom, wisdom begins with me. You can start over. There can be a new you. You can turn a page. But I'm square one. I'm square one. Come back. Come back.
the campus ministers who taught that seminar, that God's Will seminar, by the way, were a few steps ahead of us when we were there. Um, apparently, Jesus had taught them too. There's not a formula, a magic bullet, an algorithm that will enable you to successfully live by sight and not by faith. So they were so good to not lead us astray with these stupid decision trees. They were so good to talk about Jesus in that seminar. So good to talk about the character and heart of God for his people. So good to talk about how secure your future is in the hand of one who's given you all he has. And that was liberating. So um, I, I, I'm aware that I'm talking to people who are more similar to me than not. I know UGA's changed in the 15 or so years since, since I was a student here, but it used to be like this and it still is, probably even more so. We're probably people, when you see the title on this page, you're like, oh, decision-making, it's 10 minutes in. When's this guy gonna get to the practical stuff? Like, when are we gonna say, well, in this situation, do this or apply this proverb to this problem and this result will pop out. Do you feel that? You feel like a horse and you're pulling back on the reins right now? Come on, Ben, lay the groundwork and let's get the business. That's worldly wisdom. God, your maker, your father, your redeemer, your savior, your lover is putting his hands back on your shoulders and he's saying, son, daughter, the beginning of wisdom is me. Fear of the Lord. Wisdom starts with me. If you want to be literate in wisdom, I'm the ABCs. And so it should be no surprise to any of us that Jesus is where we have to root our conversation about wise decision-making. And Jesus, knowing your God, is where you have to root decision-making, wise decision-making. But why? Um, because the root of wise decision-making is not peeking around the corner of the time-space continuum and getting a sneak at what's going to happen tomorrow. The root of wise decision-making is not perpetual research about your situation and how to get all the data so that you don't get caught flat-footed when something comes up. Neither is the root of real wisdom and decision-making TED Talks or sitting down with an advisor or a pastor or a therapist or a friend or a parent and saying, tell me everything you know about the future or how you did it. The root of wise decision-making is not certainty about your circumstance. It's certainty about the character of your God. That took me 20 years to learn and a lot of sleepless nights. Did you hear me? The root of wise decisions is not certainty about your circumstances. It's certainty about the character and the heart, the promises, the presence of your God. Do you want confidence in your decisions? Do you want to be calm in your decision-making process? Look to him. Do you want to be frantic, frazzled, sleepless, tossing and turning all the time? losing your mind, fixate on you, your analysis, and your circumstances. And like I said, I did that for most of my life, and it did not yield the peace that I thought it would or the security or the confidence that I thought it would. 
If that were the, the root of wise decision-making, certainty, omniscience, research, analysis, turning over every stone in the universe to try to figure it out, if that were the root of wise decision-making, you and I would be on our own. I know it sounds promising and sounds helpful. Uh, I love a good seminar as, as much as the next girl or next guy, but it's not what we think it is. You would be all alone in that world if the, if the root of true wisdom was you figuring it all out. It would all be on your shoulders. Have you ever lived in that lonely, scary existence, friends? It's an anxiety-riddled life. Uh, it's an orphan life where you feel all alone with a huge problem in little you and you don't know where to run. Uh, Arthur Leff, I appreciate his honesty. He's not a Christian, he's not a believer, but he's a professor up at Yale Law School and he had the honesty to say uh, that, I'll add the part in, apart from Jesus, he's looking at the world not believing there's a God, not believing Jesus is anything special, and he says, it looks as if we, we're all we have. Given what we know about ourselves and each other, this is an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. That's where you and I are left if this is all up to us. If wisdom is memorizing proverbs and knowing how to apply them to problems like puzzle pieces, you're on your own. Because it's up to your memorization, your application, you knowing when to apply this one but not that one. And that's a lonely, scary, exhausting, tired existence. That's not what God is calling us to. We're toast if that's what he's calling us to. The root, the root of true wisdom and wise decision-making isn't our ability to figure things out. It's what our Father told us right off the bat in Proverbs 1. If you were here three weeks ago, do you remember verse 7? The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, the starting point. That's the drawing board. That's the start line. That's the ABCs that everything else is built off of. A, a deeply changed character a mind that Jesus is conforming more and more and more to his mind, little by little, pressing you into his mold, that you begin to think through the things facing you the way he thinks through the things facing you. Uh, there's a guy, uh, Ray Ortland. I told you you're going to hear his name a lot because he's helped me a lot to understand a lot of this stuff, and uh, he has a much better definition of, fear, of what fear of the Lord means than I could ever come up with or that I found anywhere else. And so it's long, but I'll read it to you. Follow along or take a picture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If that's so, and it is, then the fear of the Lord is never to be feared. Don't be afraid of the fear of the Lord. It's not something to fear in that sense. Well, then what is the fear of the Lord? It's not a cringing dread before the Lord or a guilty, oh no, here comes God, I'm in for it now. The fear of the Lord is openness to him, willingness to turn from evil and change. Fear of the Lord is a surrender to his will. It's when we realize Ben Coppage is not the measure of all things. In fact, I'm the one being measured. This reverence toward God, perhaps surprisingly, it builds our confidence and flows out as a fountain of life into everyone and everything that we care about. 
It takes us to that place of maturity where no one has to follow us around with a tedious list of do's and don'ts, constantly telling us what to do. We are motivated from deep within. Why? Our character has changed. Jesus is changing our mind. We think differently. We prioritize differently. We desire different things. We know what is right, and it is what we love because it is of God. That's the fear of the Lord. Reverence, awe, being overwhelmed with God and his goodness, his wisdom, his brilliance, his love, his presence, his reality. Being overwhelmed by that to the point that you live under that sunshine all the time. If the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord, then what's the beginning of fear of the Lord? Do you follow that? If, if, if God says the beginning of wisdom is fearing the Lord, then what's the beginning of fearing the Lord? What's the starting point for that? Where would you go if you want to know, well, I kind of want this. I mean, by the way, do you want this? Boy, this is beautiful. Can you see if you don't want this? Can you feel? This is beautiful. What happens if you don't know if you have it, but you want it? What's the beginning of fear of the Lord? C.S. Lewis puts this well. He says, the fear of the Lord is unleashed in you when in God you come up against someone who is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. You finally met someone who's superior to you in every way, and it's breathtaking. He's breathtaking. Uh, he's unsettling in a good sense of the way, like I'm in the presence of greatness. Wisdom comes when you and I are decentered from our lives and from the world. When you and I are taken out of the middle, we're no longer the sun in the solar system, we're Pluto. And we are magnetically, gravitationally pulled up in the power of the sun. Not trying always with our effort and brute strength to pull all the other planets in orbit around us. But we're caught up in the orbit of a better one, a more beautiful one, a more real one. I watched an ESPN, um, I don't know what it was, like a little 30-minute documentary or episode thing about Yao Ming. You remember him about 10 years ago? He was uh, the center for the Houston Rockets. He played in the Chinese Professional Basketball League, got drafted in the NBA, and played here for a long time. The weird thing about Yao Ming and the hard thing about Yao Ming is he's seven feet, six inches tall, which is like this tall. I'm six feet. That's probably seven and a half feet. Now, the documentary thing was kind of hilarious because it was basically following him around in a normal day of his life, a seven and a half foot tall man living in a world made for six foot tall people. So imagine that person walking through that door. Imagine a seven and a half foot tall man getting in your car to go back home tonight and his head is hitting the ceiling of your car. Imagine uh, ruining your pair of pants and being like, I gotta order them online, I can't get these anywhere. Who has like five foot long pants? He can't go to get a bed anywhere normally. He can't get sheets anywhere normal. Nothing in this world is made for seven and a half foot tall people. It's a problem. He doesn't fit in this world, literally. We don't fit in this world when pride puffs you and I up to think that we're God and we're supposed to have to figure it all, all out, supposed to be omniscient, supposed to know what's around the corner, supposed to make our future secure, supposed to make tomorrow safe. 
Friends, I know, I know we're, we're scared people. I am too. I get it. But that's pride. That's a human being who is so overinflated, is so tall that every minute of your day you're bumping your head on a door threshold that's made for a small, humble person. And your, your thought processes are, are, as it were, they're just, they're not working. They're not yielding clarity because your mind wasn't made to race and think and crack the enigma of the universe the way you and I try to get it to. Do you feel like a seven and a half foot tall person who lives in a world made for six foot tall people? What deflates us? What brings us back down so that we fit? I bet you a lot of money Yao Ming wakes up most days and says, I wish I was six feet tall. This has gotten old. Like every time I go through uh, you know, a door, I gotta bend down. Every car I get in, I gotta, I gotta fly in a private jet because I can't fit in a plane seat. I bet he wants to be small again. When humility comes is when you and I begin to realize I'm a proud giant. I'm a scared, exhausted, proud giant. And I've started to see a bigger God. He's bigger than me. He doesn't answer to me. He's as of yet not asked my opinion on anything. As of yet, he's not asked my permission. I've bumped into someone so superior, so fundamentally holy and different. But he's good. But I believe him when he says his heart is compassionate, that he's slow to anger, quick to show mercy. Friends, that's the soil humility grows out of. Uh, yeah, that's when you find it a good thing to be deflated, not like, a, oh, this Christianity stuff's terrible. It's always telling me I can't do this or I can't do that. No, you're like, finally, I fit in the world again. Finally. As C.S. Lewis said again, in God, we proud giants, we do-it-yourselfers come up against someone who is in every way immeasurably superior. And instead of that being a devastating realization, it's liberating and calming and bring sanity back. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is on your page. You can read it, but it says, do you understand now how this is good news? When Solomon writes, trust in the Lord with all your heart, not trust in your own heart, follow your own way, trust in the Lord, outsource your trust, outsource your confidence to him. In whatever you do, don't lean on your understanding, but in all your ways, lean on his understanding, acknowledge him, and guess what he'll do? Drop you at the end of the rainbow at the pot of gold? No, he'll make your paths straight. You still have to walk the path. You still walk with him through the decisions of your life, but he'll straighten those things out. Or the way Jesus talks about it in Matthew 6. Sons and daughters of the living God, have you gotten into an orphan mentality again? Yeah, I have. It's like my resting heart rate too often. And Jesus says, hey, remember, you got a father. He loves you. He knows what you need. Don't go around like the godless having to secure your future like you're an abandoned orphan. You have a father. And he loves you a little bit more than weeds and birds. Friends, hear this, and then we're going to push on and, and wrap this up. You are at your best when you're small, and God is big. You and I are at our dumbest and our most foolish and our most destructive when you are big and God is small. 
Why do we make our most foolish and dumb decisions when we are big? When we're obsessed, fixated on me, 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 my thought, my wisdom, my ability to make tomorrow safe, my ability to crack this code and figure out what I should do about this job. Why are we at our worst? Because we are fear-driven people. We are worship-driven people. And you can either be led and animated and motivated in your life by the fear of God, which we've already defined as a good thing, or the fear of everything else. And that fear is not a good fear. It's a terrorizing fear. It's a terroristic fear. Because it's a fear that really says, if this doesn't work out, you're doomed. So a few examples to bring this down to earth. When you are driven by fear of anything else, when reverence or awe of anything else replaces reverence and awe of your God, this is how it plays out. When we revere and prize comfort over God, don't we make foolish decisions when all we want is the path of least resistance? Um, we think, I'm going to perpetually postpone decisions. I'm always going to be in decision-making mode because I don't want to pull the trigger because deciding on this is going to change things and that's going to be uncomfortable and so I don't want to kind of change things. So I'm going to limp along in this relationship or never confront this person or never say what I think needs to be said. I'm just going to keep sweeping conflict under the rug. And what happens? Bridges burn. Friendships break. People move out. When we revere and prize other people's opinions of us or their expectations for us, has people-pleasing ever led me into a wise situation or has it always led me into a snare that trips me up and I overcommit and I say yes, 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 because I don't want to say no, 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 and I don't want people to think that I don't like them or I'm not there for them. So do you prematurely commit to way too much Reality hits a few weeks or months later, you freak out, you light your hair on fire, you pull back from everything, you batten down the hatches, and everybody's left wondering, where's so-and-so? And it's not just a one-off thing, but it's the pattern of your life. It's always this double down, get out of dodge. And it's hurt your relationships because people don't have consistency. They don't know what to expect. When we orbit around keeping our options open, that illusion of personal freedom, when that is what you fear, you, you're in reverence and awe to it, you have to have it, you pursue it. Doesn't it promise you mobility but leaves you with paralysis? Drowning in too many options? Unsure of what to do? Just daunted at the buffet of 45 different things that you could eat for dinner and you're like, I don't know. Conversely, do you see how, now that we've talked about this, that when your life is entirely in the hands of your great Savior, that you can calm down, that you can have confidence, that you can, you can begin to make decisions and move forward with your life? Proverbs 14, 26 and 27, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Now you know how. And his children will have a refuge, a fort to go hide in when things get scary. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. This, what we've been talking about, is step one of wise decision-making. The practical piece that I promised you, the, the how-to, is only appropriate to talk about now because we've already defined that your character has to change. It's when our mind becomes more like Jesus, as the Spirit works on you over time, as our character at deep places is yielded to God and changed by God, and you begin to see the world like God, then you're ready 
to hear God tell you at a technique level almost, here's some things that are wise to do as you make decisions. I'm going to move quickly through this, and we're going to pick up a few of those ones in the middle. Let's go with Proverbs 27, 12. Our cultural version of it is fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Proverbs says the prudent person sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. They run right in. Um, Here's how I would define that. Here's what I think is going on in that Proverbs. God is warning us to beware of our heart's inclination towards foolishness. He's telling you, pay attention to your patterns. God is very realistic with us. Uh, We often, like if we could describe a voice to him, it's this super spiritual, weird, detached, like churchy voice. He's very realistic and very honest and shoots straight with us. And he would tell you, hey, it's, it's, it's a wise thing to be aware of your patterns. Don't hate... You don't have to hate yourself for them. Be aware of where do you tend to get stuck? Where do you tend to hit a wall? Where are there themes emerging in your life of pain and hardship that didn't have to happen? Pay attention to those things, he says. See the danger ahead of time and begin strategizing now. How am I? Oh, my goodness. Okay, Lord, I'm realizing that I always feel like I need to have or have to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and I'm always end up dating people, and I probably shouldn't be dating people. Your father says to you, hey, that's a pattern. What can we do now to prepare you to not step in it again? And he helps you. He's patient. The fool, the prudent, sees danger and hides. The fool just wanders right back into it. The dog returns to the vomit over and over again as Proverbs says elsewhere. In your past decisions, your patterns, what tends to weigh too heavily on your mind and mess you up in your decision-making? What doesn't weigh heavily enough on your mind and needs to be incorporated into your decision-making? Another thing, how can you see danger? If, how can you discern patterns if you never know how you get into it? Wise people are realizing the way I get into any trouble is decisions. Itty-bitty little decisions that I didn't realize were decisions. Um, I don't say this to kind of batter you with it, but you'll hear the phrase a lot of times, I don't know what happened with me and her. One thing led to another, and before you knew it, blank happened. You're never going to get anywhere if that's the way you're thinking about that scenario. It's a clumsy way to think about it. When you can begin to see decision points, little decisions you made, 10 or 12 of them that got you into that position, you decided to probably have a conversation that might not have been terribly wise. You decided to continue to have that conversation. You decided to say, yeah, let's go back to your place. You decided to be on the couch together. You decided to just allow yourself to kind of be open and we'll see where this goes. You decided to kiss her to kiss him. You decided to put your hand where you did. You decided that you weren't going to tell anyone you were there. Now that you can see and perceive and discern all the decisions, that's where change happens. Those little decisions are where danger is avoided the next time. Go back to decision number one. I probably shouldn't talk to her about this. I probably shouldn't go there with him, even though he just asked me this question, because I'm thinking 12 steps later where this is going to lead. The prudent sees danger and hides. The fool keeps reliving Groundhog Day over and over and over again because he or she's never paying attention. 
to what's actually going out. He says, desire without knowledge. Proverbs 19.2, desire without knowledge isn't good, and whoever makes haste with his or her feet messes, or sorry, misses their way. How might um, you recognize what desire without knowledge feels like in your life? I know what it feels like in my life. Um, I am a recovering emotionaholic, whatever you want to call that. I made decision by intuition and feeling. If I felt like something was right, that was what was right. If I felt like it was wrong, that was what's wrong. And that's not necessarily the wisest way to make decisions. Desire or feeling or intuition, uninformed by knowledge, uninformed by wisdom, is not going to reliably lead you where you think it's going to lead you. And God says, pay attention. It's not going to end well in those situations. Um, a lot of us get into this situation because, I'll speak for myself, I won't throw you under the bus, I'll throw me under the bus, I wanted my emotions to make my decisions for me because I was terrified to own the decision for myself and make it. Have you ever felt that way? You want your roommate to make the decision for you, you want mom or dad or your pastor or your counselor to tell you what you should do and they won't because they're like, I can't live your life. And you're like, come on, someone just tell me what to do. And you want your intuition, your gut, your emotions to say, do this. Or you get into some weird stuff, they're like, I'm gonna, I had a dream or God told me to do this. Uh, what he told you to do is in his word. And we get all sideways in these things because we're following these counselors and advisors, our emotions, our thoughts, our intuitions, our gut, but it's not been fully informed by reality or wisdom yet. Sometimes we do this because we're afraid to make the decision. Can you go back in your mind? If you have confidence in the Lord, if you're facing a fork in the road and it's not sin and righteousness, but it's good thing, good thing, and you're wrestling with what to do, do you trust that God's going to go with you if you turn left or right? If you do, you can calmly move forward in those decisions, make them, execute them, implement them. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. You can't be wise alone. So, friends, if you're here um, and you've been coming by yourself and leaving by yourself, we're so glad you're here. You can't do this alone. Go back to your church you're at on Sunday mornings and plug in. Find someone to start meeting with or find someone here to start meeting with. You can't do this alone. Um, how do you have wise counselors to go to to run your plans by if those counselors haven't been cultivated and built? If you don't have wise friends, how are they going to be there for you when a situation comes up where, man, you need help? So the pre-proverb for this is cultivate your counselors now. Coach your counselors now. And I'm not talking about paid people. I'm talking about your friends, your roommates. Start to put the cards of your story on the table with trusted friends. Not everybody, you don't have to tell everybody everything, but the whole story to some very trusted friends and say, I need you to know all of me so that when I come to you with a problem, you know what to do with the new piece. If they don't know the story, they don't know how to interpret the scene and they're not gonna be able to help you. Friends, some of us don't know when to turn off the getting counsel, getting advice off. That's me too. Uh, there, Proverbs um, 
18, 17 says, the, basically the last one you had a conversation with seems right until you have another conversation. And you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. This is what I'm going to do. And then you have another conversation. Oh, I didn't think about that. That's what I'm going to do. Wise people are learning that they have to make the decision. The point of a decision-making process is to yield a decision that you've examined before the Lord, examined before his word, examined before other people. But there comes a moment when you pull the trigger, you move ahead, and you trust your God to help you adjust as needed in the steps ahead. Run consequential decisions by friends who don't share the same blind spots you do. Otherwise, they're going to be just as blind as you are in the particular angle or piece that you need help in. I want to end with this. What do you do when you don't know if you made the right decision? If it was a hard decision. Hard decision, by definition, means you didn't know if it was right. Otherwise, it would have been hard. It would have been easy. Should I run in traffic or not? Not a hard decision. Should I take out a little bit more debt because I think it might get me a job that I could pay it back or not? Hard decision. You've got to decide. You've got to pull the trigger. You might not know whether you were right or wrong after that. God's grace inside of your decisions. If you know your Bible, you know there's plenty of people throughout it. Abraham, who trafficked his wife to Pharaoh's harem to try to get out of a bind. A horrible, devastating decision. Was God faithful and gracious to Abraham and Sarah inside of a devastating decision? Yes. Was God still God inside of David's evil decision to take another man's wife and repeatedly sleep with her? Yes. Was it painful? Was it a disaster for David and Bathsheba and their family and their kids? Yes. Was God faithful and true? Yes. Certainty of your God and his character and the fact that he will be with you inside of your decisions inside of the narrowing path you're choosing to go down is what enables you to move forward with your life and make decisions. That God will be faithful to you and God will be God inside of the decisions that you and I make. Sometimes they'll just be boneheaded decisions and he'll discipline us. But does he love you? Will he change you? Yes. Friends, that is our hope. Wisdom is the fruit of a relationship with God. It's not the fruit of internet research or TED Talks or figuring out which proverb to apply and which problem. Do you know him? He wants to know you. He wants to know you better, and he invites you to himself. Jesus bought you access to come and know him as a father who shares what he has with you. Let's pray. Jesus I prayed earlier for macro and micro changes, for big changes, little changes tonight from your word. Please make that happen. Use these weak little words to affect great and lasting changes in all of us, we pray in your name. Amen.